Hey, it's me, Brian Curtis, host of The Press Box. And I'm his co-host, David Shoemaker. And we wanted to get together today to tell you about one of our favorite podcasts on the network, The Ringer Wrestling Show. Whoa, now, whoa, 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 David. Uh, you can't talk about your own podcast as one of your favorites. Let me do the rest of this. The Ringer Wrestling Show is your guide for all things pro wrestling. And this month, they're talking about all your favorite weekly wrestling shows, plus pay-per-views. You can find The Ringer Wrestling Show on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. I think that's right. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, Restrictions all apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Hey, everybody. Brian here. David and I recorded today's press box before the Facebook outage that sparked a million overworked Twitter jokes. The best I saw was this. God help us if there's a photogenic sunset tonight. Congrats if you made that one, too. Here's today's show. David, if there's anything I hate, it's when people say, I had the weirdest dream last night. <laughs> and then proceed to explain a dream to you that makes absolutely no sense at all. Mm-hmm. With that said, I had the weirdest dream last Thursday night. <laughs> well, go right ahead and tell me about it. You and I and some unnamed other guys were on some kind of guys weekend. Wait, wait, wait. Guys that you're not naming for the sake of the audience won't know who they are or just literally they didn't have names in the story. Yes, they were faceless and fuzzy in the dream. Okay. I don't know who they are. And we all went to a haunted house. Okay. I'm not talking about one of those big industrial haunted houses that they push like a thousand people through per night this time of year. More like a haunted B&B. We were staying there in some kind of hotel accommodation. And I guess instead of just pancakes for breakfast, you got to be scared out of your wits. All so it was, it was advertised as a haunted B&B, &B, yes. not like we found ourselves in a B&B &B that turned out to be haunted. Okay. No, that had like two-way mirrors or something like that. No, yeah, no, yeah, this no. sounds great. Okay. We I'm, knew I'm, what I'm, we were getting into. Mm -hmm. Okay. And we're sitting in the lobby of the haunted B&B, &B, and I am so annoyed because I have a column to finish. <laughs> not sure what it was about, probably about the media, but I had my laptop on my lap and I was typing and I was so annoyed because you were going to get to go upstairs and enjoy the haunted house. And I had to finish a column. <laughs> okay. Now at some, some point in the dream, I either finish it or just put it aside. And the rest of the dream is just crazy in Brian gets chased by a crab monster, something like that. Just absolutely terrifying. <laughs> uh -huh. And I woke up in bed in an absolute cold sweat. I mean, a literal cold sweat, completely just, just out of my mind, discombobulated. 
and and this is how messed up my mind is, David, at this point in life. I did not take any sort of relief from the fact that monsters are not real. <laughs> the first thing I thought was, I'm not on deadline, am I? <laughs> oh, the real monster of the story, the real monster at the end of the book. That's right. It was the deadline we knew all along. Yeah. I mean, it was really that 10 seconds kind of lying there looking at the ceiling like, oh, wait, I'm not on a deadline. It's Friday. I'm okay. I already recorded my podcast. <laughs> Nothing was haunting my dreams. That's when you know you've been in journalism way too long. I guess I guess that's the old, um, I didn't study for the test dream. Yeah. Just updated yeah. for ringer writer job. Yeah. I stopped having the, I didn't study for the test dream. Dang. Right? Like in my, I mean, it wasn't until my late 30s mid thirties, late thirties. And then it just vanished. And then it became all work stress dreams. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't get that art done. Haven't, haven't studied up for the mass man show today. Yeah. yeah a lot of stress there. Weirdly. I don't, I don't know what they are anymore. Coming up on this podcast, we have the fall of the media company, Ozzy. And the time Ozzy tried to get me to be their lead sports writer. Also, John Stewart is back with a new show. Why did he get thrust out of the liberal TV host pantheon? All that and more on the press box, a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Hello, media consumers. Brian Curtis, David Shoemaker, producer Erica Cervantes here. Bit of housekeeping, David, before we dive in. Uh, I put up an interview on Friday with Eric Schlosser about the 20th anniversary of his book, Fast Food Nation. Really cool interview. I loved in particular learning how he got inside a slaughterhouse for one of the book's most memorable scenes by posing as a worker. Mm -hmm. Did not know that. Not sure anybody knew that. Um, I want to make these classic book revisits into a little series. So I asked listeners, can you help me? Can you come up with a name for the interviews where we revisit classic books? And listeners Tweet Rose and Pep suggested the pun press books. <laughs> Press books. But you asked for it. That's the leader in the clubhouse. If anybody can do better at the press box spot. All right, let's talk about the fall of Aussie media. One of the wilder media stories I've ever seen. Even though I'm not sure exactly what Aussie media was, even no. at this point. Started a week ago Friday with a typically excellent column by Ben Smith in the New York Times, who has since written six additional Aussie media stories. If you have not followed this, Aussie media was founded in 2013. As Smith writes, it boasted of a large audience for its general interest website, its newsletters, and its videos, and the company had a charismatic chief executive, Carlos Watson, a one-time cable news anchor who had worked at Goldman Sachs early in his career. And crucially, Ozzy said it had a great relationship with YouTube, where many of its videos attracted more than a million views. Now, on February 2nd of this year, David, Ozzy had a conference call with Goldman Sachs and Alex Piper who was the head of unscripted programming for YouTube originals. Interestingly, it was supposed to be a Zoom call where everybody looks at each other. But YouTube's Alex Piper said, I'm having trouble logging onto the Zoom. Let's make this a conference call. We've all been there, yeah. <laughs> no faces. Now, as Smith writes, once everyone had made the switch to an old-fashioned conference call, the guests told the bankers what they had been wanting to hear that Ozzy was a great success on YouTube, racking up significant views and ad dollars, dot, dot, dot. As he spoke, however, the man's voice began to sound strange 
to the Goldman Sachs team as though it had been digitally, though it might have been digitally altered, the four people said. The Goldman people then reach out to Alex Piper and were told by Piper, that wasn't me on the call. You were not talking to the guy from YouTube Originals. Smith writes, within days, Mr. Watson had apologized profusely to Goldman Sachs, saying the voice in the call belonged to Samir Rao, the co-founder and chief operating officer of Ozzy, according to the four people. That's where this story started. And what a way for a media story to begin. Yeah. Um, it's following this story has been, I mean, just the, the following the following of the story has sort of been part of the real joy of it, right? I mean, as someone steeped in the media world and podcasts about media, you write about media a lot. Uh, this is, you know, right up our alley. But there's a large degree degree which you have to sort of take a step back and say, this is this is sort of well, not tabloidy stuff, but the stuff that we're ta- the stuff that that is that is catching on, the stuff that's getting tweeted about, the stuff that people are you know DMing each other to see if they read is just like so over the top and sort of like you said. I think the the, the real salient thing that we have to stipulate at the beginning is what is Aussie media. I mean, we certainly have never mentioned the words Aussie media on this show before. Not that that's the be all end all. I kind of got the impression from a couple folks on Twitter and then by following up with some friends who were still in New York, you know, I've been in New Jersey for the past year and been out of Brooklyn for most of the pandemic. Um, but it seems like there's been a, there that there's some awareness of Aussie media just due to like, like, you know, poster advertising all over Brooklyn over the past year or so that mm-hmm. I wasn't present for. There's obviously these LA based billboards that you, you know, were sort of strategically placed, but certainly not prevalent. Um, but as far as like encountering a story from Aussie media in the wild, you know, like being retweeted by somebody or even primarily tweeted by somebody, I don't think I had any concept of who this was. I didn't have any concept of who Carlos Watson was, despite him being a quote unquote, former MSNBC personality or host. Um, that by the way is not disputed because it's nominally true, but seems to be the sort of original lie of this whole thing that he was just like a host. He was a, he appeared several times on morning Joe and then, or for some period on morning Joe, and then very briefly had a show of his own. Um, but that kind of establishes him as like, you know, it, uh, Rachel Maddow level news figure or something. Um, the whole story is just, bonkers but it's about a relative nobody in the media landscape who started a website who relatively nobody has ever encountered and um but the you know the links that he went to to make this website well seem viable slash be viable all sort of add up into this really sort of compelling um story i mean there's a lot to learn from it i guess i'm not sure what we can really learn about Aussie media itself, but let's, you take it now. No, no, I, I, I really, I, I just totally double down on your point of this kind of not knowing what Aussie media was and it coming out of this era where there were websites popping up where sometimes your friends were being hired by them. Oh, right. Yeah. And even your friends didn't quite seem to know what the mission statement was. Mm hmm. Uh, ben Smith in his original piece mentions Mike and Fusion as being two other things that come out of this era. 
two great examples. I mean, Fusion in particular, I think that even, I think by the time anyone I knew was getting hired at Fusion, there were at least contemporaneous, like New York Times profiles of the website. But Mike is a great one where like I probably pretended I knew what Mike was the first several times I heard of it before before I actually went back and tried to figure out what it was. Um, but even those were on a totally different level than Ozzy. Um, it's, uh, I mean, I think a lot of what the story kind of underscores is that we don't, like the average person doesn't know what it means to be a media entity in the modern age. And certainly, and people in, as we can know by the story, people who are investing in these media entities have no idea what it means to be a media entity in any sort of meaningful way. But I think even people in media don't know what it really means. I mean, it's like, yes, to make this thing personal, uh, well, to make this thing personal, I mean, people have dismissively called The Ringer a podcast company, implicitly saying that the written side is meaningless to the overall the overall production or, 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 or importance of the site. I mean, again, personally, I would, you know, point out the continued existence of the written side of the company after being purchased by a giant strictly audio company as a counterpoint to that. But the, but the, but that also just kind of shows an ignorance of the imbalance or the varying balances of modern media. Right. I mean, you it'd be easy enough for someone to point at a website and say, they spend 55% of their resources on podcasts. So they have it backwards or they they're messed up. Right. We just don't know about these things. Right. And I think that, but I don't think that's like, I'm not saying that I know everything. I mean, certainly, I mean, you look at any major online publisher that's been born over the past 10, 15 years. Like I have no idea what any of their business models look like. We can joke about them, you know, but I don't know. I could, I couldn't say anything with confidence about even how the successful ones balance their, their bounce, their sheets and, uh, and balance their workload. Um, and But it actually goes back further than that, too, because it's like when you look at the people who are invest, like Goldman Sachs investing, and there's all these people investing in this money, investing money in this, and, and excuse me for rambling, but there's a couple of things going on here. One is that people don't even understand, people who are investing money in this don't really understand what BuzzFeed is or what the Daily Beast is or with these sort of like last generation's major websites that are seen as successful, you either don't get what makes them work in a way that would make it reasonable to invest in another site or you have this sort of like deep-seated dismissiveness of it, which it seems to be sort of like what under the underlying current of this entire story, which is to say that like we people who worked at investment firms, if like if these idiots are making millions of dollars with a website, then we can go make a website and then we can start <laughs> taking all this investment money. Yes. Right? So it's clear that, I mean, Goldman Sachs was, <laughs> Goldman Sachs was apparently just like one phone call away from handing over $40 million to a company that, according to some resources, Ozzy had taken on $20 million in debt financing recently, which may, which I, as uh, on my reading seems to have been before the Goldman Sachs investment would have taken place. Maybe I'm wrong. But regardless, to be investing that kind of money based on a phone call, I mean, talk about old school, the way old media worked. Let's just get on the phone with this YouTube guy and let him like, you know, tell us you're doing real good and then we'll buy the rest of your story. It's just, it's crazy. I mean, it makes you want to start a website. <laughs> yes, it it does. And, and let me tell you, that's what was so striking to me about all these stories is the thin line between what's okay to do at a media startup 
mm-hmm. and what's not okay to do at a media startup. Right. We can all agree that allegedly someone impersonating someone on a conference call is not okay. It's obviously not okay. But mm-hmm. what about the part where you say, hey, my website is really, really popular. Tons of people subscribe to my newsletters. Look at the traffic my YouTube videos are doing. Mm-hmm. Look at this crazy traffic. Look at how I am appealing to this very specific demographic. Yeah. Young people, those young readers you really want. My website has those things. My podcast is has all these fantastic guests. Everybody's doing that stuff. Mm-hmm. Everybody is doing that stuff. And, and look at all the money, by the way, investors are giving us. Does this sound like other websites you're familiar with sure. at this point in history? That is what every media startup does. Mm-hmm. So to an extent, and again, I'm not, I do not want to at all sort of, you know, wave away what, what, what Ben is reporting here, but it's just so striking to me that there's a certain game you play no matter what. Yes. And that everybody's playing. And then here is this moment where Ozzy again, allegedly goes over the line and that's, that's it. Okay. Now here, now we're pulling out, we're shutting down though. I guess he said this morning that they are actually, that Ozzy is coming back in some mm-hmm. way, whatever that means. But anyway, that was just so striking about the story because it just feels so familiar to this era of media startup. It does. I mean, listen, th- this is definitely like the, like the fully like bare cupboard version of. There are extremes. Yes. Or the, 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 yeah. The, this is the empty cupboard version of everybody else. Right. I mean, everybody else is doing these things. And frankly, like if you had bought a bunch of fake followers on Twitter or paid for a bunch of fake views on YouTube or impressions on a story or anything else and managed to translate that into continued success, that's not much of a New York Times article. That might be like a BuzzFeed article because actually BuzzFeed did report on this in 2017, Mm -hmm. Ozzy specifically. But it's more than anything. It's like a, you know, a, a Twitter rant that like makes people mad for like 24 hours, then everybody forgets about it. Because again, nobody really cares how you get your first million impressions as long as like the they, the menu, the millions follow after that, right? That's right. And Ben mentions that in his article. It's like, hey, if you if you said, look, I did all this kind of flim flam at the beginning and then your, your whatever you have turns into a multi-million dollar company, hundred million dollar company, everybody's like, oh, well, that's what everybody does. And well, that's the argument that, that, Carlos Watson was making basically on TV today. He was like, of course we paid to get our our media in front of, you know, the right people. We don't want it to get lost in the algorithm. I mean, that's all BS, but that's 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 the uh, on its best reading, that's basically that argument, right? It's like, yeah, well, we were paying to get the right people to look at it and that would eventually me- be meaningful. I mean, I, I guess your mileage may vary on that. <laughs> I was sitting there reading the Aussie articles last week, David, and I was like, wait a second. Did I get recruited by Ozzy <laughs> at some point? Search my email. It turns out I did, or at least I got a note from Ozzy in 2014. Oh, my gosh. First of all, the note begins, hi, Brian, with an I. Yeah. So it's kind of a problem if you misspell the person's name that you are reaching out to in the opening email. Just want to just note for all future media startups. This is the way the the email reads. We are a new daily digital magazine launched by former CNN slash MSNBC anchor Carlos Watson. And we're currently in the market for a lead sports writer. 
This is a super important position for us as we partnered with a big media brand on this hire. So the person who fills the role will get a national perch. We're less than a year old growing like gangbusters and getting some nice press, et cetera, et cetera. Would you like to jump on a call? I was not going to go to this website. (laughs) We were at Grantland at the time. I did not need a national perch, but I do remember getting on this call and coming away and not knowing what Ozzy was at the end of the call. (laughs) So exactly what we're talking about here. But that was wild to find that in the email. Yeah, I can't believe you were one of Ozzy's earliest employees. It's really what could have been. They probably sent. They probably sent out a press release touting their sports columnist Brian Curtis. (laughs) (laughs) Could have been on a billboard in L.A. That would have been amazing. Um, couple more notes for you before we shut off the Ozzy fire Uh hose here. Uh, our friend uh, Matt Moore sent us a New York Times alert that said called Ozzy an embattled company oh no yeah i would say that counts also i know and i know you're absolutely right to focus on the big picture stuff here but we have to savor a few of the details of the story that came out well no no i think that we i mean listen i love savoring the details i spent a whole car ride from brooklyn to i mean from new jersey to brooklyn on friday explaining the story to my wife in in just minute detail just and <laughs> and actually actually they shut down like as we pulled into our parking spot or they announced that they were closing down after they pulled into as we were pulling in it was just an incredible ride incredible story i was i'm definitely here for it and apparently my wife was too um but i think it's just i think as long as we're like having as long as the story is just kind of generally about the emptiness of media, then we should make sure that we're covering it in a, in like the, you know, at least in part in a non empty, in a, in a, in a, you know, way with a few calories. And I think that Ben Smith's, I think his most recent piece, um, which was called what they saw in Aussie was a good, a good piece. You know, I mean, I'm not saying his other pieces weren't, but that was sort of the piece that needed to be written, right? Like, why did why did people invest in this thing? You know, and why and what the and there's some you know there's some good stories about what the employees there experienced, um, but you know, in a world of fake news and whatnot, I just think it's it, you know we should take a take a second just to point and say like what like why like what is the difference between a successful or a correct you know, modern website and one that's totally full of it. And I think that it's not just touting fake numbers and tricking people into paying for it. It's why the people are paying for it, right? It's the numbers that it's the sort of thinking that undergirds the numbers, but I am totally invested in the wacky minutia. So go ahead. How about the A and E story? Uh, Smith reported that a TV (laughs) producer was brought on for the Carlos Watson show and was told it would be prime time on A and E, the cable network. They managed to interview for this show Terry Crews, Andrew Yang, Malcolm Gladwell, Roxanne Gay. Then the producer realizes that A&E has scheduled hoarders for the time slot, Smith writes, that was supposedly meant for the Carlos Watson show. So the way (laughs) you find out that you're not going to be in primetime on A&E is that hoarders is actually already in the slot. (laughs) <laughs> the umpteenth episode of hoarders i can't believe that anyone would have seen the release of the fall a and e schedule and that and and drawn that conclusion i guess they were probably eager to see the name of the show on the lineup or whatever but like if i just saw 
an A&E schedule that had hoarders in the eight o'clock slot or whatever, I would just be like, oh, we're looking at last season's schedule. Oh, we're looking, <laughs> like, this could be season. from any year in the past decade. <laughs> they, this is just a mistake. I wouldn't think that there was a giant lie underneath everything. I mean, and listen, kudos to the people that saw this lie coming a mile away. I mean, it's all this stuff happening. Also, um, Anthony Fauci was interviewed for the Carlos Watson show because, of course, Anthony Fauci, yeah. that was funny to me. Listen, a lot of people were, and a lot of people showed up to Aussie Fest. Which yes. of course, which of course, a great part of all these articles is that they were sued by Ozzy Osbourne, uh, who founded Ozfest, which is just like yes, I mean, you called it Ozzy Fest strictly because of the existence of Ozfest, <laughs> and yes, there would be some people who are confused, yes, um, but yeah, like every major, like there, the the people who appeared at Ozzy Fest should not be shamed for appearing at Ozzy Fest, but it does do a good job of sort of like, like uh, making a list of a certain class of modern high profile podcast intellectual right if if ozzy if if ozzy targeted you you're a very certain sort not good or bad just that's a very certain thing oh to appear at their podcast as yeah a guest? appear at the, at, the, at the convention at the ozzy at the fests yes. you know if you if you go if you look at the pictures on stage of all these like major figures the mark cubans of the world sort of like surrounding mm-hmm. carlos williams uh carlos it is watson a, it's yeah it's a it's a it's a very certain sort it's Interesting tweet from Sports TV Ratings uh, points out that Milwaukee Bucks co-owner and former Aussie media chairman of the board, Mark Lazary's role in this story. Yeah, he might be the real one. Not the he might be one of the real heels of this. I mean, he had a kind of very interesting role, at least in the, the, the dying days. Oh, well, yeah. So when Smith reported his first story, he's the one who said, no, this was an unfortunate one time event. It's OK. I'm satisfied with what happened Then resigned four days later. This is uh, the tweet from Sports TV Ratings. I've been wondering if ESPN Sports Media should be covering the recent news, Rebucks owner Mark Lazary. I know it's not NBA related, but if it were Jerry Jones, Robert Kraft, or even Steve Ballmer, pretty sure sports media would be all over it. Yeah. That feels correct. I don't quite know why they wouldn't be or aren't right now. Uh huh. Because it still seems like a great story or a really, you know, juicy story. It, it is a really interesting story. I mean, I think to me this goes back to my earlier point, right? Mark Lazary defended this beyond well past the point when it should have been defended, right? Because he doesn't understand the difference between what Ozzy was claiming to be and any other of his million investments, right? I mean, it's just like if he thought that if he just helped sell this absolute and utter bullshit story, uh, if he just put out one press release and everything would be okay, I don't think he would have put himself in the role of being the chairman. I don't think he would have put out any statements if he had any inkling that it wouldn't have worked, right? That he wouldn't, if he, that it, I mean, mm-hmm. and also obviously to recoup some of his investment, he has to keep it going, right? He has to keep rolling it forward till the next people cash in. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it, it was, it, his role in it is, was just, just very suspect and, and just, like I said, just totally misunderstands what's going on here. I mean, Mark Lazary, well, whatever. Yeah, they people people should cover it. I mean, he was he he played a big role in this. Yeah, he's just not as high profile as Jerry Jones and Robert Kraft and those guys, obviously. So maybe that's the. Simplest I mean, his team answer. just won the NBA championship, so you know. yeah. But again, that's that seems like a a good reason to cover it. Like, yeah. the the Bucks are important, so why not? David, yeah. I want to talk to you about the return of John Stewart. To TV or at least streaming. But first, let's do the overworked Twitter joke of the week where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter 
made it at exactly the same time. Send your nominees to at the press box pod where they are always, always gratefully received. First up, David, on the matter of Ozzy. It was a very overworked Twitter joke to call Carlos Watson the wizard of Ozzy. <laughs> I guess is in pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Mm-hmm. Uh, from the Department of Frozen Pizza, David, uh, something you and I care very deeply about. This tweet from USA Today. Nestle is recalling 28,000 pounds of its frozen DiGiorno crispy pan crust pepperoni pizza. What? Due to misbranding and undeclared allergens. It's an, it was an overworked Twitter joke to write. It's not delivery. It's a recall. <laughs> no DiGiorno pizza in the uh, shoemaker freezer. <laughs> I you don't went with Totino's. So. And we're more of a, <laughs> you know me. I'm more of a Totino's guy. I, I would always go when it's a matter of frozen pizza. I'm always going volume. <laughs> but I think you and I both agree on that one. Absolutely no need no need to go high quality there. Remember we'd see the high quality frozen pizza and be like, yeah, maybe I'll just pay a little extra. Get get a delivery style pizza. It's not yeah. good. First of all, delivery is not good. But I mean, not not good in a way that you would want to replicate in your oven. And second of all, yeah, I mean, it's a different thing. Just like Domino's thin crust pizza is one of the great wonders of the modern world. I don't wouldn't go to a restaurant in search of it. It's, you don't, and you don't need that coming out of your freezer either. <laughs> one of the great wonders of the modern world. Finally, David, a dire headline from CNN. U.S. Right. government will run out of money by October 18th, Treasury Secretary says. U.S. <laughs> government will run out of money. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write, did the U.S. government try spending less on iced coffee and avocado toast? <laughs> Thanks to Joseph Dorowski for that. If you gave the U.S. government generic Susie Orman advice about saving money, congrats, you made the overworked Twitter joke of the week. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise, gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things. But at least I knew they were there just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side by side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. 
Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, David, in the notebook dump, I want to talk to you about the return of Jon Stewart. Great. Jon Stewart hosted The Daily Show from 1999 to 2015. He spent the last six years directing a movie everyone seemed to hate and doing cameos with his old pal Stephen Colbert. He is back, however, with a new show on Apple Plus. It's called The Problem with Jon Stewart, which made me think, by the way, with the glut of streaming shows and podcasts, it feels like we're running out of names, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. Problem with Jon Stewart. How do we feel about Jon Stewart in 2021? Oh, man. Um, (sighs) There's something just kind of obviously like implicitly interesting about a figure like this right i mean i it's like he's he retired at the top of his game there's so many sports analogies metaphors you can (laughs) you can drag this he retires at the top of his game his imitators or those influenced by him have gone to take over a, a much a huge footprint in the modern media landscape right i mean much larger than anyone would have ever guessed and all this time, people are begging Stewart to come back. I mean, at least once every four years, there is like a, you know, national write-in campaign for him to get back in the political fray. Um, and more frequently than that, too. But at some point, you just got to realize that, like, I mean, I think even wishing he was back, you're sort of imagining something that, that, that doesn't exist anymore or never existed, right? I mean, I think the problem with John Stewart was actually a really good show. But the desire for Jon Stewart is a separate thing than like the presentation of Jon Stewart, right? At some point you have to like reconcile to yourself that like, even if Elvis were alive, he would be terrible (laughs) at performing right now. Right. Or like, um, I mean the flip side of this in pro wrestling is I just saw like CM Punk come back. One of the greatest wrestlers ever after like an incredibly long multiple many year layoff. And I finally reconciled myself to him never coming back. He came back. I was like, he's going to be terrible. He was great or he's good enough. And that's fine. Mm-hmm. And I think that's sort of where Jon Stewart is right now. It's just like in terms of Jon Stewartness, he's good enough. Right. In terms of what we expect from him, from the Daily Show and everything else, he I think he hit the bar of being good enough. But I think he's going to find a hard time. I, not he. I think the show will find a hard time sort of getting situated in the modern media landscape. But we'll see. What do you think? The modern media landscape is a key point here. Because if the corpse of Elvis came back, I think he would probably find modern music a little weird and really be looking for his niche. And what what happened with Jon Stewart is is a funny thing, right? Because he's working in this completely different just television universe than we have now. Like when he's on The Daily Show starting in 1999, there is not much of a demand for the liberal smackdown hour of TV compared to now where there's a big demand for that, not only on TV, but in podcasting and everything else. Mm -hmm. So he is working in the confines of a comedy show that is sort of also about politics. 
Yes. And current events and media criticism. Like I'm going to go after the guys on Fox News and Bill mm-hmm. O'Reilly and those kinds of things. Show you what they're what they're doing to you and how they're kind of polluting the discourse. And remember he I feel he would always say, "I'm just a comedian." Yeah. I'm not I'm I don't really I'm not the person you should be listening to about this stuff. I'm just a comedian who is commenting on the discourse and everything else. We are now in a world not only where there's the liberal smackdown hour seemingly on every single network, including by people like John Oliver, Stephen Colbert and other former Stuart acolytes. You just have to be a totally different kind of host now. There's a different expectation. You mm-hmm. can't be, I'm just a comedian. You have to be right. wonky and knowledgeable and passionate, and you cannot have the ironic distance that Jon Stewart had. And him parachuting into this universe is really interesting because he's either got to change, and I get from looking at the rundown of the show, he has changed at least the show to some extent, mm-hmm. or kind of be this odd figure where he is, as you say, he's the... He's the godfather of it, but may seem out of step with what people actually expect. Yeah. It's a tough space to be in. I mean, I think that the the, the luxury of being Jon Stewart is that you get to make the show that you want to make, more or less. Now, the show itself, you know, you can take exception to. I mean, so, to small parts of it, certainly. Um, he was where, you know, he seems sort of deliberately underdressed, you know, which is sort of, you know, a choice <laughs> that one makes now... But as someone who was like out there in a suit being a fake newsman for so long, I mean, I'm sure there's examples of the contrary, but unless you're like Mr. Rogers, it's really hard to like dress down sort of in the middle of someone's imagination of you or like image, mental image of you. Um, and my wife rightly called the set Jerry Springer-esque. Um, if you mm. you know look too much at the background, there's a whole lot of you know old fans and beat up brick walls and stuff that you know probably doesn't <laughs> strike exactly the right note. Very 90s. Uh, yeah. Uh, but the the show and, and, and the main the, the first segment of the show, I'm not talking about like the, the weird like talking to his writers in the writer's room thing, but the, the, the main segment about um, about mili- military care, uh, post active and, and, and active duty military care, uh, medical care was um, necessary and compelling and you know, not up to the not up to the levels of John Oliver or many other people doing this, right? I mean, it just felt a little bit stayed and a little bit, uh, a little bit like a warm up, and that was sort of the overall vibe, right? The, his outfit made him look like he was like doing a dress rehearsal for an episode of John Oliver or something like that. But and I, all this is a big, big wind up to say, he has the ability to make the show he wants to make, and you saw that with one, the sort of like like toned downness of that whole thing. And then more importantly, everything that happened after that opening segment, when he actually had veterans on stage interviewing them in real time, that is the segment that every talk show host, serious and comical, says they're going to do when they start a new show and no one ever does it. No mm. one can ever get it approved. No one can ever get it test marketed and out there in front of people, right? And then he went and interviewed the Secretary of Defense and had a really kind of combative and frustrating interview, but he went and he did it. And I know that he's not competing with John Oliver or anybody else. Well, but like, is he but, not? Well, I'm just saying, well, not to not to read some sort of like rivalry into something that doesn't exist. But if you're sitting there saying this is as I was saying, well, this isn't quite as good as John Oliver, and then he does that instead of, you know, 
buying a website to make fun of the people who weren't giving the right the right you know medical care to to if he if he what he did compared to what John Oliver would have done to end the show was a just a giant fuck you to everybody else doing in the game because he did the thing that none of them are doing and I thought that was really impressive. By the end, I was just really sort of like impressed by that and thoroughly demoralized by the entire segment. Not his fault. That said, I have a hard time imagining. I mean, he joked on the show that people were just going to be watching it, you know, on in in segment, you know, in snippets on Twitter. I have a hard time imagining what snippets are either even going to be passed around. Um, the main the subject matter was pretty downbeat and he wasn't making it for that sort of media. So it, it'll be really interesting to see what happens. But I think that whatever runway, presume, presumably has a ton of runway at Apple and he's going to make use of it. And I think the more that he puts into it, the more he'll eventually get back. So he's saying essentially, you want Ernest? I'll show you Ernest. Yeah, yeah. If that's the criticism, the kind of retroactive criticism of me was that I was standing way, way, way above the fray I think this was a good sentence from Derek Robertson's piece in Politico about Stuart. If ironic detachment served as a cultural get out of jail free card that made it cool or at least acceptable to care deeply about current events in the Y2K era, Stuart's successors view such cover as entirely unnecessary. Mm -hmm. And now the good sentence, by the way, now he's going to go around them and say, aha, I'll make sure that this is even if I'm sacrificing a little, you know, watchability, we're going to dig into the real stuff here. Yeah. And as you say, that is, you're right. You're absolutely right. That is what everybody says they want to put on television. Mm-hmm. I'm going to put the. I'm going to give you the real thing. I'm not going to book celebrities, right? I'm going to give you the real thing, force you to watch it. But he's actually doing. It. That's interesting. And I think that I think that I mean, sort of, just to make one tweak on the the quote you just read, he did, or the, the point you just made. He he wasn't just. I mean, he 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 was saying, you want a. I'm going to give you B, whether or not you want it, but he did kind of give you a in the opening segment and it what, but, and it, it, it wasn't quite, it didn't, it didn't quite land, you know, to use the, 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 the comedy term. This but, is a monologue he's doing in the opening. Well, yeah. And I, and I don't, and, but I don't think, I don't think that's necessarily a problem either. I mean, I do think it all just sort of, it, it does hold together and it did sort of build towards the end. And the, it was like, yeah, I mean, it was the, the, the accumulation of the show was something to be impressed by and and it certainly you know made an impression i'm a little weirded out by the way he has been thrust out of the liberal tv pantheon oh yes let's talk about this i just don't like it this is one of these things that and i totally get that if you know right basically right now the t1000 john stewart exists in the form of john oliver let's say i'm not just funny i'm gonna do long wonky packages about these issues that aren't getting enough attention Right. I'm going to uh-huh. give you the John Stewart part you love, which is the comedy. And I'm also going to give you what you now criticize him for, which is not being deep enough and not sort of wrapping your arms around these issues. Yeah, I understand that. I just feel like you have to understand John Stewart in context of the time. Mm-hmm. And this idea that it was it was not it was, again, no, he was on Comedy Central. <laughs> he was comedy taking C- he was taking over a show that wasn't political. At it least wasn't not political. political. It was Craig Kilborn's show. Yeah. It was like, here is the funny thing I saw on TV show. Yeah. And I just, I just, 
the idea that he was going to be able to do like Chapo Trap House in <laughs> 2001 is ridiculous. There was there was that did not that form did not exist. There was nothing. There was almost nothing on television like that. We can put in Keith Olbermann's MSNBC show if you want to, but like there's almost nothing on television like that. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is, John Stewart was funny. Yeah, he is funny. I don't want to consign consign him to his 2005 self, but John Stewart's funny. I remember getting taken to a uh, to a taping one time when we lived in New York, and the story was. Iraq war was going on and George Bush was on a diplomatic visit to Panama and somebody stood up when he's doing the photo op with the Panamanian leader and asked him this like really tough question about, you know, the, the Iraq war or war crimes or whatever it was. And I remember just Stuart just cut the clip right there and went, Oh, tough isthmus. (laughs) Yanking at his collar. I just remember thinking that was so funny. And remember also like circa early 2000s when aggregation was still a little bit new in internet world. Yeah. And the first thing I remember is people just posting the whole John Stewart monologue online before there was oh, even yeah. an effect in you know, an efficient vehicle like Twitter or something to do that on. They'd be like, here's what John Stewart said last night. The end of my post. Yeah. Surfing off his comedy and, mm-hmm. and claiming like, oh, here's some jokes I saw on TV. Not here's the free content that I'm just going to give you, and you don't even have to watch it on television. Yeah. And to now, then go around and go, well, that guy wasn't funny. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> I just, I just find that a little bit ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. I mean, politically, it was always going to be a tough road to hoe for him, right? I mean, anybody that was sort of, sort of, bit, not just not paying attention, he's probably paying lots of attention, but it's, it's a it's a very different media world as we've covered in great depth on this show, you know, and, uh, and it's something that you kind of have to live and not just like observe. Right. I mean, to, to know the rules. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a different thing for him. And, and certainly when someone occupies the space that he did in his heyday, you know, he lives on as a great bastion of, you know, I mean, it's like JFK being a being such a liberal icon. But if you go back and look at his policies, they may leave, you know, some a little something to be desired to like the, you know, the Bernie caucus, you know, but he's still being he's, you're still held up. You're still sort of like, you know, you're, you're still a, a god for your era. It, more often than not, people like him don't get a chance to come back and certainly don't get a chance to come back and perform again. I mean, this isn't like him taking his the Daily Show to Branson, Missouri, right? And just like performing the old B- B- George W. Bush gags until for the rest of his life to like <laughs> an aging crowd of us, you know? Yuck I mean, but it, yeah, exactly. But he's he's out there, he's competing, you know. I mean, this is like Jordan's comeback to take it back to sports, you know. He's yeah. got to he's gonna go out there and he's gonna go out there and try to make some shots, and he's gonna like pull his hamstring and miss and like be crappy for half the season. That's part of the gig, you know. But like you know, it's it's. It's impressive that he's taking a swing. Totally yeah. mixed sports metaphors there. Sorry. You did mix sports metaphors, but that's okay. But John Stewart wasn't canceled in 2015. No. It's not like after the rally to restore sanity or something else we, you know, looked at at the time was like, eh, that was that was kind of you, you kind of missed your target there. It wasn't like we we all said, oh, we're not we're gonna cancel John Stewart. We didn't. No. And I would also point out that for all the shows like John Oliver, you look at, but first of all, John Oliver's weekly, not grinding out a show every day, which would be an well, interesting. Well, it's not experience. even week. I mean, it's not even every week, too. Yeah. I mean, it's semi-weekly. 
Mm-hmm. But I'd also look around besides John Oliver and say, you know what I see out there? A lot of story shows that aren't as funny as the daily show. Oh yeah. was in its day, including current daily show, by the way, if we want yeah. to put that on the marker, like it's just, mm, I don't know. Anyway, I just find that very, very funny uh, that we have, that we sort of do that. And I think he's funny. A couple of quick items for you, Dave, before we get out of here. This is from Fletcher Keel. Y'all bemoan, by the way, you, ex- you automatically get on the show if you start your tweet to us with y'all. Mm-hmm. Y'all bemoan the titling teasing of oral histories. But I'd like to know what it's actually like to put one together. It can't be easy to turn 15 to 20 interviews and make it read like everyone is in the same room talking in turn. Well, it's really hard. I mean, you're right. It's not easy. Um, Volume is certainly, you know, something that's really hard to work with. But I will say that, like, the first draft, and a lot of this is, you know, secondhand information, but the first draft can be can be relatively easy, especially for the number of words that you have, right? Putting the quotes in order the first time and suddenly being like out of nowhere, like 15,000 words have materialized in this Google Doc. That is a an amazing feeling of triumph that you don't get when you're just writing an, a feature story. You know, it mm-hmm. like takes work to get that. It takes work to get like, you know, 3% of the same quote material into 5,000 words and like, you know, massage it together and make the point and whatever the narrative arc of an oral history is already in place and the the sequence is almost always entirely in place. And yeah, if you got all the material, once you get the transcripts, you can start, you know, Legoing them together and you get a lot of the way really quickly. Now, different editors, different publications, different writers will have different standards on how long the optimal piece should be or, or the, or, or for the subject in particular. And, you know, it could be really, like going from 15,000 words in that first draft to trying to make it a, a tight 7,500 or something that can be really, that can be really tough. And then to go That's, to the original, to the specific question to make it sound like they're all there having a conversation. I mean, it's really hard to point at the best oral histories because I think, I don't think we, we we're, we're always so critical. We're not so discerning when it comes to the the quality of an oral history because it does feel like sort of reading a, the best version of a primary source, right? But the best ones do make it feel like the quotes really flow together, and they, yes. you know, then they'll cut up quotes to make the conversation feel more organic, right? You, you can you can put this quote from whoever from Seth Rogen just in three pieces, so the so it just carries the section. Um, that it's it's it, it can be a lot of work. It's it's kind of it's just a different kind of work. It's more like it's more like a you know. It's more like a puzzle. It's more like, or not even a puzzle. It's like, a, I don't know. I don't even know how to describe it. It's a little bit workmanlike, but the result can be, I think, a lot closer to art. I think after you get to that stage you talked about where you've done the interviewing and you've laid them all out, I don't think the process is that much different than writing a piece, or it shouldn't be that much different than writing a piece, because there should be a writerly intelligence behind it. Mm-hmm. In terms of the way things are laid out, you talk about puzzle pieces. I find that all the time when you're writing a story. Where does this go? I know this should go in the story, but I don't know where it goes. Mm-hmm. And then you move it around, and all of a sudden, everything makes sense. Yeah, it's not really that different. And the we've talked about this, I believe, before. But the good oral histories to me read 
like almost a written story where there's very length between them. Somebody talks for a paragraph. Somebody talks for a line. Somebody talks a little longer. Somebody. So you have a rhythm to them. Mm -hmm. You have a sort of sense. Ideas are built up through the quotes. It's not just here. And then this thing happened. And then this thing happened. You're actually learning and, and thinking on a different level. Uh, the worst ones just like, here are all the things that everybody told me. Mm -hmm. And you're just like, okay, thank you for this giant, you know, quote dump that doesn't like read like anything or doesn't really bring me to a place it should have brought me in terms of understanding. Mm -hmm. It's just very, it's just very interesting. Uh, I got an update for you, David, uh, from the field of nominative determinism. <laughs> oh, great. Something great. I will be able to pronounce at some point. You remember we had Phil McCann of the BBC reporting from a gas station the other day. I remember him well. He was look, I'm really, I've, been, I've really been enjoying Phil McCann's substack, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, someone sent us more that someone is Vino Mutt. Uh, these are also, <laughs> I believe most of these are from British television. Someone appeared on BBC News from the Water Research Center named Andrew Drinkwater. No, oh, no. So somebody named Andrew Drinkwater went to the Water Research Center. Uh, BBC Weather, we met Sarah Blizzard. Your name is Sarah Blizzard. You will become some sort of meteorologist. Wait, why but, are these all British? Well, I believe the I believe the curator is perhaps British. Oh, okay. They're finding these. Uh, then from ITV, and again, this this almost makes me think this is not real, but I just hope it's real. They're interviewing a law enforcement officer, uh, Avon and Somerset Police, and the law enforcement officer's name was wait for it, Rob Banks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, not go no with robert way. banks this is just is, is i cannot just like guarantee that one real? one honcho at like bbc is just like this is his favorite thing in the world just to send people out <laughs> to hilarious places based on their names i don't know i don't know but maybe they were just drawn to those drawn to those professions that's the whole idea yeah. Uh, interesting one from Adam Bisson. Would Ken Burns's Muhammad Ali documentary have been a sports media sensation had it aired on any network other than PBS? Uh, yeah. It would have been way bigger, right? Mm -hmm. So there's two questions to me. One is, where does it go? Because especially after the Michael Jordan thing, we're all so conditioned to expect like the giant multi-part sports documentary from ESPN. And if you, even if you have the exact same doc, but just in somebody like Ken Burns, who obviously has tons of experience in docs and sports docs and just shifted over to PBS, that it gets less play, even though PBS is free and ESPN is not free. Yeah. That's fascinating. Also the Muhammad Ali nostalgia zone. Like we have been, we have been consuming Muhammad Ali books, documentaries, many of them quite wonderful for a long time yep and is there a point in history where that's just not doesn't grab people in the same way well i mean as a publisher and i you know use all these platforms you can define them all as publishers yeah i mean there's always going to be some level of reluctance to be like or not even reluctance i mean there's some there's a motivation to take on subjects that no one else i mean that you have kind of exclusive rights to right but then at the same time you see, there's two Firefest docs, there's multiple Britney Spears docs or things that vaguely resemble docs that are all coming out at the same time. I mean, you want to ride the bandwagon, too. Now, Muhammad Ali is not a bandwagon subject, so I, I don't want to, you know, make that too close of a correlation. 
But, you know, Ken Burns has basically made a career of doing sort of the final word, not the final word, but sort of the comprehensive look at subjects that have already been covered, if not specifically in documentaries, in a million books that he's like functionally competing yes. with, right? Jazz, so like, Civil yeah. War, Muhammad Ali. He takes Ali. on big subjects. He takes on big subjects that Baseball. cannot possibly be unique to him. That's sort of the point, right? And um, you can we could have this conversation in 10 different directions. We could have it for a long time. And I, it's, I think it's a really good question. But to think that like, that that Netflix or anybody else wouldn't just back up the Brinks truck to have the next Ken Burns documentary to have Ken Burns on Muhammad Ali would be idiocy like they would in a heartbeat yeah I guess it's it's not that it wouldn't get made or get funded it's just is there you know Muhammad Ali has been one of the subjects that when you see something about it people have been paying attention to more or less forever for the last 50 years right like it's been mm -hmm. so interesting he's so fascinating he's so important that and i just it's interesting just to me to contemplate is there do we reach a moment where people are just less plugged into that i don't know and just well, don't regard that as something i have to watch right now no matter yeah, where it is that's a really that i mean that is that is the question that's a valid question but i would argue that for pbs the press release is Ken Burns does another big thing. Totally. Ken Burns on fill in the blank. And for Netflix or for anybody else, they would find a, a number of really relevant answers to the question you're asking. Like, why do I care about this? And they would make sure that's all you heard about for two months before the thing came out. Or if they did a surprise release like they do sometimes, they'd make sure that's what people are talking about online immediately, right? They would find the things that are new. They would find the clips that are interesting. They would make it seem fresh. And significant in a way that it's just not part of the PBS, you know, game plan to do. Yeah, with everything but Downton Abbey, that was that was like the PBS thing where people were, like, people online were talking about in the moment, perhaps, or on the yeah. night of. Last one I remember, anyway. Uh, Michael T. and Chicken Finger Taco, two listeners. David, want to make sure we saw Connecticut Senator Richard Blumenthal talking <laughs> about Finsta. I just want you to listen to this. This is uh, Blumenthal's back and forth with Facebook's global head of safety. Will you commit to ending Finsta? Senator, uh, again, let me explain. We don't actually, we don't actually do, do Finsta. What Finsta refers to is young people setting up uh, accounts where they want, may want to have uh, more privacy. You refer to it as privacy from their parents. What, what in my interaction with teens, what I've found is that they sometimes like to have a an account where they can interact just with their with a smaller group of of friends. Well, Finsta that, is that one said, of your actually. Finsta is one of your products or services. We're not talking here about Google or Apple. It's Facebook, correct? Finsta is slang for for a type of account. <laughs> it's really funny in an era where when aoc is doing one of these grillings or katie porter and they have everything locked down like they are the master prosecutor interrogator to get this where he has clearly just been handed something and it's like so way uh, will you commit to ending finsta right now well I'll he didn't get the answer out of him. I wish they would. I wish they would in Finsta. I think ending Finsta would make a big would make a big statement.
David, we got a few only in journalism words of the day. These are words that are uh, you read in print, but never hear human beings actually say. Oh, I've got one for you, by the way. Oh, you do? Do you want to lead with it or do you want to sure. where do you want to go with this? Sure. If, uh, a friend of the show, I'll just call him Chris. Um, I was talking on the phone this week. He's like, oh, I've got an only in journalism word for you. I want to get your take on this one because okay. it's, a, it's a usage one. And I, and I think that, that we could probably go if we start clarifying specific usage we might be able to, to 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 stretch this gimmick out for many many more episodes um his word is myriad mm. and the, and the point that he was making is in comp- outside of journalism you always say a myriad which is i believe the incorrect usage only in journalism do people use myriad correctly by saying there were myriad options on the table <laughs> Um, I'm willing to grant any usage of myriad <laughs> okay. as an only in journalism word. All right. All right. Well, that's good enough then. I don't know that I use that in speech very much, <laughs> if ever. That's a good one. Thank you, Chris. Uh, Mystery Chris uh, for that one. A couple more for you, Dave, from Brian Rice. And again, forgive me if we've had these before. I've, I've lost track at this point. For Brian Rice, coffers. I feel like we've had that before, but it's a fantastic one. All right. Thank you, coffers. Brian, for, for reminding us of coffers. Uh, from Jason McAllister, trumpeted. Yeah. Somebody trumpeted a finding. Yeah. Uh, not literally the, trumpeting. No. But yes. Not, not an instrument, but you were, you, were, you were advertising something. And this is from Chris Reed. I love this one. Mold. Hmm. Yeah, because when you said that, I, it took me a few, like a full second to understand what you were saying. But if you'd seen it in print, you'd know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. You never wine. use the word mold. mold wine you use in real life. Yes. I have it. used that in my household. Yeah. But never, but never mold as in <laughs> thought about or considered. Time for David Shoemaker guesses the strain pun headline. Yeah. Last Monday's headline about two generations of running backs named Frank Gore was Frank's and Jeans. Listener Noah suggests. We should have. It should have been dad jeans, <laughs> which is funny. But aren't all jeans dad jeans or mom no, jeans? Dad jeans is not itself a pun on jeans. No, so it yeah, is a dad, pun. It dad is a jeans pun. is fine. Dad no, jeans dad, is a pun. Dad but all, but all actual right, but is all not a, yeah. it's kind of redundant, right? All jeans right. come from mom and or, you know mom and dad and relatives. So anyway, yes. Today's headline comes from Joseph Dorowski, his second appear- appearance on this podcast, by the way. Get that man in Oxford comma. Today? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. It's from AP Oddities, David. The story is this. Dollar Tree. Love Dollar Tree. The national chain of stores that promises everything for a buck will begin introducing items on its shelves that exceed $1. That exceed $1. What oh, was man. the AP's strained pun headline? Dollar uh infl- is, is it like an inflation joke uh b- b- make your dollar go farther uh dollar mm. oh oh a tree maybe like a um the tree grows the dollar grows uh the giving you're, tree the taking tree <laughs> the giving tree your your keyword here is buck, buck. oh buck um buck one Buck, buck and doe, buck, uh, a buck. God, I can't think of anything. Buck, buck, buck oh, buck up, buck, buck up. up, buck up. Oh, is the 
Strange. And I feel like there's a lot of other places you could go with that one. <laughs> Please send them to at the press box pod. We will. We, big buck hunter. Bigger buck hunter. Yeah. Oh, see, here we go. He is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. Production magic from Erica Cervantes. David, we should we do a quick, uh, some quick format talk here on the press box podcast? Let's do it. So we have David Shoemaker is a very popular podcast host here at the ringer. It's odd way to start this, but go. <laughs> a very good podcast host of the ringer and the ringer, as you might've read, and I think we even talked about is bu- buffing up its wrestling inventory. There's a lot of buck up in the wrestling inventory, a lot of wrestling stuff going on. Yeah. So you're going to be, you're going to be doing tons of things over in that section of the ringer. So what that means to the press box pod is David is not going anywhere. We are going to do our Monday podcast just as we always do news of the day, funny stuff, etc. But then David is going to let me do the Friday podcast, which will be interviews with people, some fun shows. And David will be on the bat phone to do the Friday podcast. Yeah. So what do we call that? Kind of a medium format change, minor format change, format tweak. Yeah. Format tweak. We're still here but just in slightly different form going forward. I think you did that well. That was good. Okay. We're, we're fine with that. But we will always have more lukewarm takes about the media. See you then, David. See you later, Brian.